Welcome to Talking Thomism, the official podcast of the Center for Thomistic Studies. Each episode of our series features a member of the Center or a visiting scholar presenting the fruits of his philosophical research. In this episode, we will hear Dr. Jennifer Frey, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of South Carolina, giving a paper entitled Aquinas and Anscombe on Action. This paper that I'm writing, and this is a very, very early rough draft of that paper, is going to come out in the Oxford Handbook to Elizabeth Anscombe. She gets her own handbook. And um, they asked me to write about Aquinas's um, influence on Anscombe. And uh, after some back and forth, we decided that there should be a separate chapter just devoted to Aquinas's influence on Anscombe with respect to action. Um, it's written for an audience um, that is likely not to know anything about Aquinas. So if some of it seems kind of rudimentary to you, I'm sorry. Um, but in my world, um, you just can't presuppose that anyone's read any St. Thomas. So um, now I want to start with uh, my favorite blurb on the back of intention. So this is the blurb by David Bellman at NYU. And this is what he says in this book. Often quoted, sometimes read, rarely understood, Anscombe's intention is nevertheless the defining moment in 20th century philosophy of action. Um, I like that quote way better than the one on the cover, <laughs> which says that Anscombe's intention is the most important treatment of action since Aristotle. Uh, I beg to differ. <laughs> um, but I do think that, um, look, just the ignorance of St. Thomas uh, is in large part responsible for the fact that Anscombe's masterwork is in fact so rarely understood. So I want to try to make a contribution in helping people out and understanding what is going on in this book because I completely agree with Feldman that it is rarely, it is so often cited, um, but rarely understood. Okay, and I think that any attempt to grasp what's happening in this book um, you need to understand the set of problems and considerations that were animating Anscombe in writing it. And in order to do this, I think we need to go into some of the background of her life. So from the very beginning of her studies, um, when she was an undergraduate at Oxford, she was very outspoken about matters of justice and concrete matters of justice. Um, and in particular, she was especially worried about people being lax with respect to the traditional prohibition against murder. So in the second year of her undergraduate studies, she publishes a pamphlet titled The Justice of the Present War Examined. And it's a fascinating little pamphlet. Um, and in this pamphlet, she cites Plinus extensively. Um, and this makes sense because at this time in her life, she's about 19 years old, and she's still receiving instruction on the faith from the Oxford Dominican, um, Richard, is it Cahoe? Mm -hmm. How do you say his name? Cahoe. Cahoe, okay. Uh, so over at uh, Blackfriars. Um, so she's, she's writing this at the time that she's making an extensive study of Aquinas. And in the pamphlet, she gives a pretty straightforward natural law kind of argument. Um, and she reminds her reader that we can discover through the use of our reason, the natural moral law, 
there is a necessity for man to follow the precepts of this law in order to attain his proper end, and it's within this general Thomistic framework that she makes the case that the <coughs> British government's official propaganda and likely actions in the war do not meet specific conditions of a just war. Um, now, her main target is the propaganda about the indivisibility of modern warfare that the British government was putting forward running up to the war. And her trouble with this is that it makes no principal distinction between legitimate and illegitimate objects of military attack. Um, and in particular, it does not give us, um, it explicitly rejects the distinction, which for her is very important, um, against uh, killing innocents and non-innocents in war. So according to the doctrine of the indivisibility of modern warfare, um, somehow like people in nursing homes and kids on the playground, like they're all, it's all up for grabs, they're all part of the war effort. And Anscombe was already, so Anscombe's convinced this is a murderous policy, um, it should be opposed. Um, but she also is convinced, even in 1939, she's <coughs> convinced that we can make no progress on the question of who may never be attacked in war without a, quote, doctrine of intention in human acts. And she thinks that in order to analyze the actions of a government in war, that we need a theory which could distinguish between motives for action, proper effects of an action, and the completed act itself. Um, and she she tries in the pamphlet to um, you know make some progress, but she's really not. She's she's presupposing that you already understand uh, the Thomistic framework, um, and she's making moves within it. Um, and so she talks about double effect. She says, look, you can't. We can't run cases of double effect um, to try to make this turn out to be okay. Um, now, why at such an early age and in the face of a brave evil such as Hitler's Germany marching across Europe, is Anspen making such a fuss about killing German civilians? And <coughs> she addresses this in the pamphlet. Um, and here's what she says. It's about the seriousness of sin. So she says the following, um, we may not commit any sin, however small, for the sake of any good, however great. And if the choice lies between our total destruction and the commission of sin, then we must choose to be destroyed. And she reminds the reader that the unjust, deliberate killing um, of innocence is murder, and this is a great sin. So now if we skip ahead 17 years from her second year as an undergraduate, um, she's now a tutor at Somerville College in Oxford. And Oxford University has made the brilliant decision to award Harry S. Truman an honorary degree. Anscombe is horrified that Oxford would give honors to a man who has twice ordered his subordinates to carry out acts of mass murder. And so she attempts to force a vote to formally oppose it. Um, and so she's speaking on the floor of convocation to her colleagues. And she orders that, um, you know, she, she just makes the case that it ought to be opposed. Um, and this is, I'm just going to read it uh, because I love it. So this is how she recounts what happens uh, at convocation uh, in 1956. The Johns at St. John's were simply told, 
the women are up to something in convocation. We have to go and vote them down. In <laughs> <laughs> Worcester and All Souls and News College, however, our consciences were greatly exercised, as I have heard. A reason was found to satisfy them. It would be wrong to punish Mr. Truman. I must say, I rather like St. John's. Um, so she was much happier with just the straightforward misogyny than the perverted consciences. Um, so, so this is a flop. Um, nobody votes uh, with Anscombe except for uh, some of her female colleagues in Somerville. Um, and so in 1957, she publishes another pamphlet. This is Mr. Truman's degree, in which she would state the grounds of her opposition in greater detail. Um, and, and, and it was sort of an international event. I mean, I think people forget this. You know, there's an Anscombe archive now in Philadelphia, um, which was acquired by my friend Matt Bryan. And um, I've been in her archive. And um, I've read some of Anscombe's hate mail. Anscombe received a lot of hate mail um, about her public opposition to Truman. Um, but there's also a three-page letter from a Japanese man dying in the hospital thanking her. Um, so it was very much an international thing, her opposition. Um, so, she, so she formally publishes another pamphlet, Mr. Truman's Degree, in which she tries to explain herself. And she argues that Truman's a mass murder unworthy of honors. And again, her analysis rests on what we must say he intended as means to his ends when he made the decision to give the order to drop weapons of mass destruction on Japanese cities. And she writes in the bombing of these cities, it was certainly decided to kill the innocent as a means to an end. And this is always murder. And she acknowledges that the end was good. Um, she acknowledges that the end saved many lives. Um, she acknowledges that the war would probably have continued if the ends had not, if these means had not been taken, uh, but she's not impressed. Now, at the end of her pamphlet, Anscombe wonders why so many Oxford people would be happy to flatter a mass murderer. She thinks some light on the subject is shed when we consider that the prevailing moral philosophies put forward at Oxford since the turn of the century, all of them reject the idea that any action is intrinsically evil and therefore absolutely prohibited. Now, Anscombe's concern with these themes, the nature of intention, <coughs> the importance of absolute prohibitions, um, she uh, continues to write about this in a very famous essay that she publishes the following year. This is 1958 in the Journal of Philosophy, and of course, this is Modern Moral Philosophy, um, which I'm just assuming they all it. So this essay begins with three theses. I'm not going to read them. They're on your handouts. Um, and I think that modern moral philosophy is a lot like intention in the sense that um, it's often quoted and I think rarely understood. So one thing that people really struggle to understand is the unity of these three theses, like how these are all is this just a list of interesting things that Anselm thinks, right? It's just a, it's a pile of claims, or is there a unity to these claims? Um, I think that there is a unity to these claims, um, and that thinking about them through the lens of Aquinas is helpful. But let's start with the third thesis. So this is the thesis about absolute prohibitions. Anscombe contends that all of the supposedly notable differences amongst contemporary English moral theorists are, in fact, superficial, since they are all united in one deep respect. 
Each has put out a philosophy according to which it is not possible to hold that it cannot be right to kill the innocents as a means to any end whatsoever, and that someone who thinks otherwise is an error. Now, Anselm understands absolute prohibitions as Aquinas did. So they function as first principles. They would correspond to the avoid evil side of the first principle of practical reason, do good and avoid evil. First principles, as I understand them, are the absolute starting points of reasoning. They structure its intelligible character. For Aquinas, there are action types that one must never even consider performing, regardless of one's circumstances, because the nature of the acts themselves, in their essence, is opposed to the end of practical reason itself, which is realizing a good human life. No deliberation that concludes in the intentional performance of such actions could be sound practical deliberation. Now, there are very few such acts, but our knowledge of them as evil and therefore to be avoided comes to us quite naturally through ordinary practical reflection, and it structures our sense of what, what uh, sound practical deliberation looks like. Now, Anscombe thinks, of course, we need a theory. Um, if, if, we hold, if we hold this view about absolute prohibitions, so um, we're talking about act types that are described in such a way that it's clear that they're evil and to be avoided, we have to have a theory which can properly identify the relevant descriptions of an act in particular circumstances. Um, so that we could ask ourselves whether it's that kind of act, namely the absolutely prohibited kind. Um, and then she says, well, look, we're just lacking that. And what happens in the absence of such an account? That is to say, an account of the relevant descriptions of an act in particular circumstances. She thinks that Sidgwick's philosophy gives us a hint. So he argues, as she points out in Modern Moral Philosophy, he argues that it does not make any difference to a man's responsibility for something that he foresaw, that he felt no desire for it, either as an end or as a means to an end. So for Sidgwick, certain foresight is enough to ensure uh, responsibility and perhaps blame um, or praise. And there is no meaningful distinction between an act per se and per academic effects or what Anselm calls its, its proper effects and its, and its accidental effects. So I think an example helps to bring out the problem, the examples on the handout. I call it wicked tyrant. Um, so imagine the rule of a wicked tyrant. Um, in order to break any resistance and to guarantee compliance, the tyrant seeks to force prominent citizens opposed to the regime to act against their conscience. One day, he sends a military officer to the residence of a prominent cardinal of the Roman Church with the following order. Either publicly deny Christ, or else all priests will be indefinitely imprisoned in immediately foreign labor camps, i.e. killed. So the cardinal's choice is clear. Either perform an act intrinsically evil, or refuse in the certain knowledge that grave harms will befall his priest, the priest under his care. Let us suppose the cardinal is a good man and he refuses to do evil. Is he responsible for the bad consequences of his good choice? And if not, why not? After all, he certainly knew that the bad consequences would come to be as a result of his choice, and he is therefore the cause of their coming to be. Right? So they're only going to come to be if he makes a certain decision. Um, and they won't come to be if he makes a different decision. Now, Anselm notes that by Sidgwick's 
Sidgwick's doctrine, there's no difference in the cardinal's responsibility for what happens to his priests between the case where he pursues this harm for its own sake or as a means to some other purpose or when it merely happens as a foreseen and unavoidable consequence of his refusal to commit evil. And if there really is no salient differences between these two cases, then it follows that what must, like how must the cardinal deliberate, right? Um, well, he must weigh up the consequences and see on which side they fall. And if they fall in favor of violating the prohibition, it's obvious in this case that they would, right? You know, it's a little apostasy when it comes to saving lives. Um, so this is the problem. Um, and it's sort of amazing um, how many theories of action are going to have this problem. Um, and I mean, the, the landscape really hasn't changed significantly. So for all of Anscombe's supposed influence, um, th this fact remains. Um, and, and nobody is talking about it. So Anscombe sees that we need a theory of what falls under the scope of a man's intentions and its proper effects and what falls outside of it. Um, because if we don't have such a theory, um, then the nature of practical deliberation um, changes too. So um, the way that we think about practical reason. So it's not just um, how we assign praise and blame, though that's important, but the nature of practical deliberation itself um, is up for grabs. And so what the case illustrates and what Anson is trying to argue in modern moral philosophy um, is that <coughs> failures in action theory land us with a bad ethics. So for consequentialists, as Anscombe defines them, action is a kind of production, um, and we should produce more good states of affairs on the whole than bad ones. And this will be what morality demands of us. We will say that this is what morality demands. So a failure to think clearly about action leads us to exploit what Anscombe argues um, in thesis two, is a senseless use of moral put to nefarious purposes and destroys the concept of justice as a virtue, since no actions can be called unjust simply in virtue of their factual descriptions like killing an innocent man. The example reveals that Anscombe's three theses are in fact deeply united in the need for a proper account of human action, its essential structure and underlying principles is the red thread running through them all. So Anscombe's famous, one of her famous conclusions in modern moral philosophy, which everyone finds sort of interesting but also insane, is that we should stop doing ethics until we do the action theoretic first, right? That we need to do action theory before we do ethics. Um, and it's sort of interesting if you look at what happened after the publication of modern moral philosophy. So the exact opposite of what Anscombe said should happen, happen. So Anscombe said, please stop doing moral theory. Um, it's really bad. And instead, people came up with virtue ethics. <laughs> um, and then they cited Anscombe as like their inspiration. Um, but she, she actually had claimed, um, no, we should stop doing moral theory. Um, we shouldn't try to explain the moral thought or morality in terms of virtue. That's not what I'm saying. 
I'm saying stop using this word. Um, it's a senseless word. Um, and stop doing ethics until you figure out the relationship between practical reason and human action. Um, but nobody did that. So you had two things that flowered in the wake of these two incredibly influential uh, pieces of writing, modern moral, modern moral philosophy and intention. So on the one hand, you had people reading intention who read it um, basically as a work of philosophy of mind. Very interesting, right? Um, you know, Anscombe was really onto this interesting mental state and intentions. Um, and this is nothing to do with ethics. Nothing. Um, and then you had people uh, after modern moral philosophy doing this thing called virtue ethics. Now, the people doing virtue ethics weren't doing the important work in philosophy of, of action. So the people working on her philosophy of action and the people working on her ethics weren't talking to one another as if their work had any like bearing right, on the other. Um, that's an interesting fact, and I think it's just um, another sign that there was sort of a failure to comprehend what she was trying to do at this stage in her career. Um, so this claim that Anscombe makes in modern moral philosophy, we should stop doing ethics until we have a, a proper account of action. Here again, I think we see the influence of Aquinas. So if you think of the way that Thomas proceeds in the Summa, prior to his treatment of human acts, we find his treatise on the human, his account of the capacities of the human person and their proper acts and exercise. And after Aquinas takes that up, he talks about uh, the treatise on happiness or the final end. So that end for the sake of which these capacities come to be and towards which their exercise is ultimately and perfectly ordered. Uh, the realization of the perfect or complete good for a man. Um, and it's within this context that he investigates the nature and structure of human acts, which he thinks is prior in order to an inquiry into virtue. Right? So after human acts, Aquinas discusses human passions, then habits generally, then he finally gets to his account of what a virtue generally is. Um, and then way on down the line, virtues, but not before he talks about law and grace and all of this. So um, my only point is that I think Anson thinks this is, this is the way, right, you must proceed. And when she says that, um, what is it, is it thesis one? Um, it's not profitable for us at present to do moral philosophy that should be laid aside at any rate to lay an adequate philosophy of psychology. Um, I take it that by philosophy of psychology, she means the kind of thing you find in the so-called treatise on that. Okay, um, so that's all in the way of background. Now I want to talk about Anspin's theory of action descriptions and intention. Um, so, uh, I want to try to understand Anspin's theory in my I should notice the respects in which the way she proceeds is obviously different. So the first obvious difference is that Anscombe's topic and intention is much narrower 
Um, then Aquinas's uh, stated topic in the Treatise on Human Acts. So Aquinas begins the Treatise on Human Acts with the nature of the voluntary, right? So all acts of will um, have this voluntary character. Um, what's that? Let's talk about that. By contrast, Anscombe begins her investigation far more narrowly. She is concerned with the concept intention and the underlying unity between the intentional character of actions, intentions in action, and intentions for the future. So she's like, is intention being used equivocally in these different contexts, or is there some kind of fundamental unity across these uses? And, you know, she thinks there's a unity. <laughs> um, but intention, understood as an act of the will, is treated by Aquinas um, in one question, question 12. And intention is distinguished from choice and many other acts of the will um, that Anselm seems all too happy to just not talk about at all. Um, so there's that. Um, why the focus on intention? Why start there? Can we can we understand intention and then later worry about the voluntary? Um, and in fact, what she does. Um, so at the very end of the book, in passages that for whatever reason no one in the world of analytic philosophy of action ever talks about. Um, she talks about the voluntary, and, and I'm going to return to that later in the talk. Um, I'm not going to try to present the overall argument of intention. It's not possible. Um, I want to focus on what I think uh, some of her principal insights were um, and why I understand these insights as a kind of synthesis of <coughs> kind of Thomism within the framework of, I don't know, analytic, Wittgensteinian, grammatical investigations. Um, and I think that too is somewhat, that fact that she's, she's working within two traditions that seem on their face to be incompatible. I think this is like very much in the spirit of St. Thomas. Um, he did the same thing. Um, yeah, so I think it's a kind of synthesis, but I'm going to focus on the Aquinas side. Um, what is Anscombe's principal insight in intention? I think it's this. The form and structure of a paradigmatic case of human action is deliberative. And for this reason, the intentional character of human acts is characterized by a special kind of practical knowledge of them under certain descriptions i.e. those descriptions that figure in the deliberative structure of the agent's right, reasons for acting. No one can act intentionally, then, without knowing in this peculiar practical way that one is acting under these intentional descriptions. Um, so I think the whole book, really, is an extended meditation on the exact character of this knowledge um, and its necessity. So there is a problem that Hanson notices at the beginning, but that of course goes back to the early pamphlets, and that's the problem of specification. Okay, so for any intentional performance, no matter how basic, um, it's always the case that both intentional and unintentional descriptions of what I'm doing are gonna be perfectly true, right? So Jones walks into a room and he flips a light switch. Okay, here's a bunch of true descriptions of what he does. He contracts and releases such and such muscles. He raises his arm. He illuminates the room. He casts a shadow on the wall. He produces a clicking noise. He wakes up and perturbs the unsuspecting dog. 
He alerts the prowler to the presence of the owner of the house, and so on ad infinitum. And so the problem of specification is this. Of all these descriptions, which are perfectly true of what Jones did, render me a syllabus of the events of Jones that day, and all of these descriptions would be perfectly true descriptions of the events, which of these are the intentional descriptions? And Anselm's first move is to identify them with Jones' practical reasons. So intentional actions are the ones to which a certain sense of the question why is given an application where the relevant sense of the question is determined by its characteristic response. That in which the answer <coughs> is positive gives a reason for acting. And insofar as one can answer the question, um, she displays a certain kind of knowledge of what she does under the descriptions she gives in response. Um, so we're going to understand um, intentional descriptions insofar as we understand how they are related to the special sense of the question why, or the special sense is the practical reason sense, whatever that means. Um, so that's, that's, that's the first move uh, that she makes. Um, now, skip a bunch of sections to 23 to 26 of intention, which I think is like where it's at. Um, and we get the famous case, the brilliant case of the guy pumping water um, from a cistern into the house. Now, I'm not going to read this um, amazing piece. <coughs> it's on your handout. Please look at it. It's, it's lovely in its detail, and it's also kind of funny in a dark way. <laughs> um, so there's this case of the pumper. Now, the man's moving his arm up and down repeatedly, right? His muscles, with Latin names doctors know, are contracting and relaxing. The moving of his arm is casting a shadow on the rockery, where it creates a kind of optical illusion of a human face. The pump is making noises that are beating out a distinct rhythm. He's sweating, he's earning wages, he's making disturbances of the air. He's wearing down the soles of his shoes. What is this guy doing? She wonders. Um, and she says, well, look, the most obvious candidates for what we want to, the most obvious candidates for the descriptions um, of what he's doing that are intentional are those that the agent can place um, in a certain kind of nexus in relation to the other descriptions. So we have this A to D order. So he's moving his arm up and down, call that A. He's operating the pump connected to the cistern, call that B. He's replenishing the house water supply, call that C. He's poisoning the inhabitants of the house, call that D. Now, D, poisoning the inhabitants of the house, D has a certain pride of place in the imagined series of responses to Anscombe's example. And she says, D, poisoning the inhabitants of the house, this is the intention with which the act and its other descriptions, A, B, and C, is performed. So she writes that D <coughs> swallows up all the preceding intentions with which earlier, earlier members of the series were done. Okay, so I think there are a few things to notice about what's going on here. Um, first, there's Anscombe's marvelous attention to the concrete circumstances of her imagined example. Um, and I think that's very important. So the um, circumstances are what Aquinas calls the individuating accidents of the particular actions. This is question seven. Um, so by calling the circumstances accidents, 
Uh, this doesn't mean that they're unimportant or they're trivial, they're very important. Um, and because Aquinas argues that ignorance of circumstances renders an action involuntary. Um, so they're essential to the voluntary character of the act, even though they are outside the substance of the act itself. Um, so there's a general act type murder, um, but we have to look to the circumstances to know whether this killing and this and these circumstances is right an exemplification of, of murder. Um, it may or may not be, depending on the circumstances. Um, but we must look to the circumstances to know um, whether it's murder. And of course, the circumstances tell us who, what, when, where, by what instruments, how, when, and about what. Um, so just to, I realize this is all rudimentary for y'all, but you just have to bear with me. Um, right, it's not a circumstance of theft that the object is another person's property. Say that would be another person's property is sort of like the essence of theft. Um, but look, the circumstances include what specifically is stolen, here and now, where, by whom, whether it's something great um, or inconsequential, um, the further intention with which the thing is stolen, et cetera. Um, so the importance of circumstances is meant to respect the distinction, which actually, amazingly, often gets lost in contemporary action theory between act types and actions, right? Um, but, it, but it's very important. <laughs> um, so much attention is paid to the circumstances that minor tweaks to them change the nature of what we say is done intentionally. So in a second iteration of this case, Anscombe imagines a second gardener. Let's call him the indifferent gardener. Nobody talks about the indifferent gardener. Um, the indifferent gardener is like a really interesting guy. <laughs> um, so, look, he answers the why question rather differently. Um, why did you replenish the house water supply with poisoned water? His reply is not to polish them off, but I didn't care about that. I wanted my pay and just did my usual job. Uh, what difference does that make? And some thinks it makes a lot of difference. So in that case, although he knows concerning an intentional act of his, for it, namely, replenishing the house water supply, is intentional, okay, he's still doing that. It is also an act of replenishing the house water supply with poisoned water. But it would be incorrect, Anscombe says, to say that his act of replenishing the house supply with poisoned water was intentional. Now this gets people, um, people get exercised about this. Um, not, pe not people in my world, but people in other worlds. Um, I think it's important. Um, I think it's important. I think Hanscom's right. No, I'm not going to defend that. Um, but I think she's right. I'm just going to try to explain why she says what she says. Um, so, unlike the original case, the second gardener is sincerely and utterly indifferent to what happens to those Nazis in the house. He could not care less whether they live or die. He's just doing his normal job, in spite of the fact that someone else has poisoned the water he uses. Although he has no interest in it, the different gardener knows that someone else has poisoned the water, so he's not ignorant of this circumstance. He knows. Um, and so he knows that doing his usual job to earn his pay will involve pumping poison water into the house. And yet, Anscombe says, the gardener does not intentionally replenish the house supply with poison water. 
The fact that the man knows that the water is poison doesn't make his act of intentional poisoning. Why not? Um, I'm not going to answer this question right now. I'm going to answer it uh, in a little bit. Um, but I just think her example is constructed so as to highlight the difference between two sets of you know, perfectly true descriptions of what happens um, and how much the particular circumstances affects this. Also here, Anscombe discusses a break. Um, so, you know, this guy who's pumping water, yeah, he's trying to poison some Nazis, um, but he's not poisoning the Nazis, like, for its own sake, right? He has designs. Um, he's trying to bring about the kingdom of heaven on earth and things like this. Um, but Anscombe says there's a break between the intentional description of what he does of poisoning and the further <coughs> intentions for the sake of which he does it. So we can ask the why question of D, and we will get a response of the because or the in order to form, a rationalizing form, to save the Jews, put in the good men, bring about the kingdom of heaven on earth. Now, while we can say in these particular circumstances that uh, pumping the water is a poisoning, so Anson wants to say that, right? Um, so, and, and that's important, because suppose he was pumping the water and he gets struck by lightning, right? Um, and so, you know, the Nazis don't get poisoned. Um, he was still engaged in an act of poisoning, right? He didn't complete it, he wasn't successful, but he was still poisoning. Um, so, th so this is very important to her. Um, she does not think we can say, in these same circumstances, um, that Aang is eating. So like in pumping the water, oh, he's bringing about the kingdom of heaven on earth. She doesn't think we can say that. There's a break. Um, now, it's interesting to me that, again, nobody really talks about this. It seems very important. Um, why, why is there a break? Okay, why, why does the order stop at D? Um, now, this um, is, is mystifying to people. Um, and many people have suggested in an offhand way, it's simply a matter of like temporal gap, you know? Um, but I, I don't, I think that's a non-starter. Um, and I think looking to Aquinas can help. I think this is a point about the individuating role of circumstances, but it's also a point about the specifying role of the object of a human action. So uh, for Anscombe generally, um, intentionality um, and this is very clear from her other papers, intentionality is always a directedness upon an object. Um, and the case of the intentionality of action, of course, will be no different. And Aquinas thinks that acts are specified by their intentions, but intentions have objects, the things that the agent is acting upon. Um, now, in this case, the action the actions, right, the pumping of the water and um, the moving of the arm up and down and, and the pumping the water, etc. Um, the actions are directed upon the inhabitants of the house. The action will have been successfully carried off so long as they are dead. But the poisoning can be successful and yet the kingdom of earth not be brought about or the Jews saved and neither of those is likely to be completed by this act of poisoning. So unless the case of giving D uh, so unlike the case of giving D to the why question, if we gave any of these responses um, to it, um, then we could not use B, C, and A in answer to a how question. 
right? Um, so somehow um, we cannot say that pumping water is a means to bringing about the kingdom of heaven on earth in the same way that we can say that pumping water is a means to the poisoning. Um, so there's a break in the chain. Um, and I think this is a point about the specifying role of the object being acted upon. Um, and here again, I think she's drawing on Aquinas. Um, and I also think there are important ethical consequences to this. Okay, so um, in acting, you have to, in order to be acting intentionally, in order to be intentionally poisoning the Nazis in the house in your present activities, um, you need to know that you're presently moving your arm up and down is the means by which you are poisoning the Nazis. And if you don't know this, right, if you only, um, so it's not just that you have to know it, you have to know it in a certain way. You can't discover it, right? So it can't be that like someone informs you. Um, you're pumping the water. Did you know that you're poisoning the Nazis? Oh, am I? Um, oh, okay, no. <laughs> you weren't poisoning them intentionally if you had to be informed or if you had to infer it, if you had to have evidence of any kind. So you know it directly. How is this possible? This is like the thing that mystifies everyone reading intention. How can you know without evidence? How can we speak of knowledge without evidence? It's impossible. Um, no, it's not impossible. Um, <laughs> um, but you can't understand how it's possible unless you take seriously what Anscombe says, um, this is in section 32 of intention, she says we cannot understand practical knowledge of our actions under intentional descriptions unless we understand practical reasoning. Or what is the same, the practical syllogism, Aristotle's great discovery. Um, so um, what, she, what she goes on, I'm gonna gloss over this um, just for the way of time for Q&A. Um, basically what happens at this point in intention is Hanscom establishes that the AD order of actions um, is uh, whatever can go into the AD order of action can be formalized in a practical syllogism. So if it's an intentional description of an action, it will be part of some potential practical syllogism. Um, and that's just to show that the AD order of action yeah, it's a teleological order, um, but it's a practical teleological order. So that is to say the end that structures it is an end that you know, um, and you know it without evidence. How? Because you decided, right, that that's what you were going to do. You didn't discover that that's what you're doing or infer that that's what you're doing. That's what you decided to do in your deliberation, and now you're doing it. Um, so the way that you know your end in acting is through self-determined acts of, self-conscious, self-determined acts of practical reason and will. So we can, so the relationship between practical knowledge and practical reasoning is this. What you know, the descriptions of your action that you know, um, which we're calling the intentional descriptions, 
if you know them by having decided, right, um, that you're going to do, you're going to pursue this end by these particular means in these particular circumstances. Um, if you are self-conscious of this order of things, an order of things which is not there naturally independent of you, but that you in fact um, are, are, are as it were um, making real in the world through your action, um, if you know that by virtue of having decided upon it, um, then you have practical knowledge of what you're doing, and you don't have practical knowledge of what you're doing outside of it, okay? Um, so the AD order of action can always be formalized in a syllogism. Anscom is not saying that the syllogism is a mental process, which absolutely, her Phrygian convictions would absolutely be militantly opposed to that, but of course she doesn't think you syllogize before you act. A lot of your action is habitual and you never think about it, but we could syllogize your action if we really wanted to, say if we were writing a, a book about intention. Um, so the syllogism is just, it's just a heuristic. It's just to show that the teleological structure of a human action is deliberative in its character. Um, now, I just want to say something really fast about um, the nature of the syllogism, in particular the nature of the what can go in a, in a first premise. So Anscombe thinks um, two things about what sorts of descriptions can figure into a first premise, and these are formal characteristics. So she thinks, look, whatever can be brought into the first premise of deliberation is an object of intention. Um, so it's not an idle wish or a hope or a prick of desire, but it's something the agent is trying to get. Um, this implies, I think, that there's a certain amount of know-how. So like, I can't intend to, um, I don't know, a fly to Mars tomorrow. I can't intend to beat LeBron in like a sand dunk contest. Uh, maybe I could wish for these things. They seem great <laughs> in various ways. I can't intend it. Um, <clears throat> so it's not suitable to come under a first premise. With respect to, Anscom also says, with respect to what can fall under the first premise, that um, it typically goes beyond reference to something that's merely pleasant or habitually pursued. So uh, why does she say that? Because the why question typically applies to it. Um, so, why are you poisoning the Nazis, right? Um, it's usually not, um, usually the, the answer refers to something else you're up to, right? So practical syllogisms often depend on other practical syllogisms um, for their full intelligibility. Um, and this is where, in, in this bit of the book, Anscombe is talking about the role of the good in practical reasoning. Um, and so she says, what can come under that first premise can be formally characterized, formally, as useful, suitable, or pleasant. Obviously, um, this will be very familiar to people in this room. This is coming from Aquinas about the formal ratio um, of, of, you know, of, of, of appetite. Um, but, I, but I take it that what Anson is doing here is um, 
trying to get at, you know, what Aquinas would call the, the formal ratio, the, um, or what she would call the intentionality <coughs> of rational desire or intention. Um, does that make sense? Um, she also thinks that the syllogism specifies a certain kind of practical necessity, namely the necessity of doing something in order to attain one's good. Okay. Um, so I think this is all really Thomist. Uh, <laughs> so maybe I don't, I don't know if I need to really press that case here, but I'm, I'll, I'll do it quickly. Um, so if we look at question six, so the first question in the treatise on human acts, um, it's a question about a certain kind of knowledge uh, that's characteristic of the voluntary. So the quote's on your handout. I'm not going to read it because it's long. Um, but it's a kind of perfect knowledge of the end. Um, and Aquinas distinguishes it from the imperfect knowledge that um, animals have of what they pursue in, in their actions. Um, and I think this is the difference between sort of consciousness and self-consciousness, um, or I don't know, conceptual life and, and non-conceptual life, or rational life and, and non-rational life, like these are all different ways of, of getting onto it. Um, but of course animals know what they're, what they're doing, right? Um, but they don't have the the, the character of their knowledge is, is fundamentally different. Um, so what's so special about human knowledge, um, or the so-called perfect knowledge, and of course perfect doesn't mean infallible, um, but it, it's like the Thomas sense, you know, it's higher. <laughs> it's more perfect um, <coughs> than the knowledge that the animal has of their end. Um, and, and here I think um, what Thomas is saying is that, well, an animal can regulate its behavior in terms of what it can perceive as good or bad for itself, um, but it can't make choices in light of meaningful alternatives, because in order to make choices in light of meaningful alternatives, you'd have to have concepts. Um, so you'd have to be able to desire things under different descriptions, and like we can do that, like, like one thing, we can desire under one description and not desire under another. It kind of depends on where our attention is focused. And he doesn't think that um, animals can do this. Um, and for that reason, an animal cannot transcend its inst instincts, right? Um, because in order to transcend mere instinct, we have instincts too, um, but we can transcend them. But in order to transcend it, you'd have to have intellect, reasoning, and will which would allow you to desire goods under different descriptions and also levels of descriptions, right? So there are, it's not just that we have different descriptions, um, but we have different levels of descriptions. So there are higher order descriptions also um, that govern choice and deliberation. Um, and this affects how we are drawn to things. Um, so Aquinas thinks... Um, that the basic character of willing, so like its intelligible ratio, is that, um, you know, you see things under the universal good. So you pursue things under the universal good. 
What does that really mean? Um, I think that means that for, um, you know, take the case of poisoning the Nazis, so that's like an intention that this guy has. Um, he doesn't just, like, have that, <laughs> right? Um, it's, uh, he has reasons. Um, now, what are his reasons for wanting to poison the Nazis? Well, he thinks the Nazis are bad guys. Um, he thinks that the Nazis are committing genocide. He thinks that the Nazis shouldn't be in power. Um, so killing the Nazis is what he thinks he ought to do, simpliciter, right? It's called for in the situation. In order to make a judgment like that, Aquinas thinks you have to have some conception of the universal good. You have to have some idea of how you ought to be going on in life, some general idea um, of the way to go. And rational desire is the ability to see particulars in light of that very general thing. And animals just can't do that. So they don't have that perfect knowledge of their end. Um, but we do, and that, in fact, is what's characteristic. That kind of knowledge of our ends is what's characteristic of the voluntary. Um, human action is voluntary because it proceeds from this perfect knowledge of the end. Um, so that is, I think Aquinas says, what is that, I know the end, quay end, <laughs> right? I know the end as an end, and that means that, again, I see my ends in light of my other ends and my you know, find them. Um, okay. So, I think that Aquinas would be perfectly happy to agree with Anscombe that one displays, that one possesses this perfect knowledge insofar as they can answer a certain sense of the question, why? Right? Um, now, Aquinas um, is, is, is arriving at this idea of knowledge in a more direct way, Anskin is trying to get at it through a kind of Wittgensteinian grammatical analysis, um, as she is wont to do. Um, but, it, but look, they're arriving, <laughs> right? They're, they're arriving upon the same view in, in, in different ways. Um, I think it's the same view. Okay. Um, I want to go back to the indifferent burden. Okay? And, and then I'll stop talking. But I, but I want to go back to the indifferent burden. Um, remember that in that case, Anskin claimed that an intentional description of his act replenishing the house water supply um, is a means of doing his job to get his pay, but the description replenishing the house supply with poisoned water isn't. So he's not doing that intentionally. Um, even though he knows the water supply has been poisoned by someone else, it doesn't bear on his end. It's outside of his deliberative order, okay? It's not gonna get thrown up into a syllogism. So, by her account, it's not an intentional description. This does not mean that we can ignore the fact that he used poisoned water knowingly. So, Anscombe says, look, well, he's not excused from murder, right? Anscombe thinks, and she has other articles on this, that you can murder, um, you can, um, you, you don't have to intend to kill to murder someone. So these are cases of negligence. Um, just as an aside. Um, so he's not excused from committing murder. But how can she say this? Um, 
And now I think we have to get finally to what she says about the voluntary. And what she says about the voluntary is practically plagiarized from Thomas. <laughs> I mean, it's just his view. Um, so at the end of intention, she gives um, four groups of cases. And these are merely voluntary and not intentional. And what she wants to say of the indifferent gardener is that the description replenishing the house supply with poisoned water is a voluntary act description, but not an intentional one. So these are the cases. I'll go through them really fast. The first group of cases is idle or thoughtless actions, things done for no particular reason, okay? Um, she thinks you do stuff for no particular reason, but you know that you're doing it. Um, and you can answer you can answer the why question. It's just your answer is there's no, there's no particular reason I'm doing this. And she thinks you have practical knowledge in that case, um, but it's not, you don't have the kind of knowledge of your act in the syllogism sense, because there is no syllogism, but you still have practical knowledge of what you're doing. The second group of cases are those in which what one does is the antecedently known concomitant result of one's intentional action, so that one could have prevented it if one would have given up the action. But it's not intentional, one rejects the why question in its connection. So that just is a formal description of what's going on with the indifferent gardener. Um, we can say that his act of replenishing the house supply with poisoned water is the antecedently known concomitant result of his intentional action, right? Doing his normal job. He knows that. Now, Anscombe thinks it's obvious that he could have and should have prevented this concomitant result. And the fault lies in his practical deliberation. It could have and should have occurred to him that he has no authority to kill the inhabitants of the house, no matter how morally cretinous or dangerous they are. And so he should have refrained that day from doing his normal job or switched out the water or something. It is a case of negligence. He fails to do what he could have and should have done. So although poisoning the inhabitants of the house is accidental to his intentions, that does not mean he isn't responsible for them or that his action isn't blameworthy. Um, and she thinks it's a mistake. It's a mistake to say that he does it intentionally. Um, and so now I have to disagree strongly with my friend, Matt O'Brien. Um, now, contrast, and here's why I think it matters. Contrast the indifferent gardener case with our wicked tyrant case. So think about our poor cardinal. It's not the case that he, he could have prevented the foreseen concomitant results of his action, which is the certain death of his priest. And again, it comes back to his deliberation. The cardinal knows that he cannot commit apostasy, no matter how much good might come from it. So it cannot be that he is responsible for bringing about the deaths of his priests. So I think these two cases underscore the importance, again, of the connection between deliberation and action as understood by both Anscombe and Aquinas. And Anscombe thinks there is a difference when you intentionally pursue something as a means to your end and when you don't, right? Um, and that's not to say that cases of negligence um, where, you know, it's an omission, um, that's not to say that, that that's not deliberative in some sense. It is, but it's just a failure of deliberation, right? Um, and and that's, a, that's a real failure. Um, the third kinds of voluntary acts are those which are not ones doing it all, but which happen to one's delight, so that one consents and does not protest or takes steps 
steps against it. So this is a lovely case. Anscom imagines a person who gets pushed down a hill and rolls into a party of people. <laughs> the action is involuntary, like somebody pushed you. But Anscom argues that it becomes voluntary in virtue of the fact that it pleases the agent once it's begun, because he enjoys it while it happens and he does nothing to stop his progress. If the agent does nothing to stop himself, right, then she says, well, he must consent to it. And in that case, an interior act makes an external act go from being involuntary to being voluntary. Um, so sometimes she thinks it's a criterion of, of, of thought. Sometimes. It's not, it's not the normal case, but sometimes. Um, and finally, Anscombe says that the voluntary extends to what is neither willed nor done. For instance, there can be voluntary omissions, such as when one fails to do what one ought, such as a student who oversleeps and misses a class, right? Um, of course, the student did not decide to oversleep. Um, so it wasn't faulty deliberation. It was just a failure to deliberate at all. Now, this account of the voluntary is almost identical to what we find in Aquinas, who argues as follows, and this is on your handout. We call something voluntary both because it falls within an act of the will and because it falls within the power of the will. The former is directly voluntary, the latter indirectly. For in the latter case, we call even non-willing voluntary, since it is within the power of the will to will or not to will, and likewise to do or not do something. Um, and as he's explaining <coughs> this, Aquinas says, whatever can come under the power of the will Right, this power of the will is what he calls the agent's dominion. And I think this is something like our deliberative knowing control over what happens, okay? And there's lots of stuff um, that can come under that control. Now, it's only blameworthy in the case where we should have exercised this power and we failed, or we exercised this power in, in the wrong way. Um, so it's not the case that, like, um, I'm omitting to do like the 10 million things I might possibly be doing right now. Um, I'm only omitting to do something if it's the case that given who I am, I ought to be doing it here and now in these circumstances. Um, but it's going to have to be settled by this idea of dominion. And I think this idea of dominion, um, there's the dominion of like the human. Um, but then there's the dominion of me, right, as like my particular responsibilities given who I am and my commitments and my roles and et cetera. Okay, um, last thought. <coughs> I guess what I want to say is that what can be grasped as within one's dominion is going to be an object of practical knowledge either in the intentional sense or the voluntary sense, which is broader. Um, so knowledge of what one can and ought to do through the use of one's own rational capacities, or we might say your rational causality. Um, and it's this sort of knowledge um, that determines whether action descriptions are either intentional or voluntary. And I think if we don't understand this idea, which I think you also find in Aquinas, there's no chance we're going to understand what Elizabeth Hansman is up to and intention. <laughs>